Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. So I had to miss last week because, as some of you guys may know, my son was delivered unexpectedly a month early, and obviously it was a pretty hectic time. However, now, as we're talking, both mother and son are at home. They are doing very, very well. Everybody's happy. Everybody's comfortable, and things are looking very good. So considering that I've got babies on the brain, Today, we're going to do an episode on the demographic crisis, declining birth rates, why people aren't having children, and what we can do to potentially change that, and the ramifications if people aren't ending up having enough children. So, what exactly is the demographic crisis, quote-unquote, if you are not familiar with it? This is something that has been talked about in regards to countries like Japan and South Korea for well over a decade. But now we're talking about it in regards to China, in regards to Germany, Spain, Italy, Russia. A lot of other countries are entering this conversation in regards to declining demographics. So as a result, I've noticed a whole lot more people talking about this issue and bringing it to the fore. So effectively, what the issue is, is that more and more, it seems like people are less willing to have kids. So let's move over to our first point here. This is our list of sovereign states and dependencies by total fertility rate. So what the total fertility rate here, as it says up there, is the expected number of children born per woman in her childbearing years. So let's take a look, see, and see which countries aren't having kids, which have the lowest fertility rates here. This is right now we got the highest all the countries with the highest fertility rates are in Africa by and large. Number one, Niger, Somalia, Democratic Republic, Congo, Mali, Chad, Angola, and so on and so forth. But let's just flip the script here. We got a bunch of crappy little territories that nobody cares about because they don't have enough people to have any data. So unfortunately, we will not know the fertility of the Vatican City. We just don't know how the Pope is doing. <laughs> if the Pope's getting his freak on. In any case, let's move into the countries that we do have actual data. The first one being South Korea. And in regards to South Korea, this data is from 2022. They started releasing some new data, particularly on South Korea, and their fertility rate is even lower this year. It continues to drop year over year. And I believe now it's at less than what? So what you need, of course, for a quote-unquote replacement rate is two children. You need to replace the mother and the father. Obviously, if every woman is only having one kid, then the population is going to half because men can't have kids. So we're going to take a deeper dive into South Korea. But looking deeper onto this list, there's some pretty interesting countries that are making the least fertile list. Bosnia and Herzegovina, number two after South Korea. Singapore, number three. Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, not having babies. And then we go to Portugal, Greece, United Arab Emirates, Moldova, Italy, Serbia, Croatia, Finland, Japan, Ukraine, Spain. Oh, Canada, we're in rough shape too. So what are the issues long-term if this kind of demographics continues? Well, some people are a lot more black-pilled on this kind of stuff than I am. Like some people think that this demographic, the crisis will lead to the collapse of civilization and the collapse of the economy and the government as we know it. I don't think so, but there are definitely going to be some serious growing pains as we move towards this new future. Because what the issue is, is that as people age, 
they produce less and less and they withdraw more and more from their retirements, from their savings, from wherever else they've built up their money. So these people are no longer contributing to the economy, which means that the government is getting less and less tax revenues, which of course means that the government is able to offer less services because it doesn't have the same amount of money going around. And when there's not enough young people to replace the older people retiring, it means that a country has less of a production base that they can use to, again, produce goods, leverage wealth, all that kind of stuff. So this will result in severely contracting economies, potentially less government services in the future, less tax revenues for the government as we try and figure out what we're going to do when we have all these old people that are being supported by less and less young people working. And my personal big fear for this future is that for guys like me and for a lot of you guys in your early 30s, mid-20s, early 20s, moving into the world and moving into the future, when I look at this population, my biggest fear is that in response to this and response to less government tax revenue is the government is going to turn around and start being like, okay, well, now because we have less workers, we have to extract more from the workers that we do have. So effectively, they're going to raise taxes and they're going to crush us even more to make up for this population shortfall. That's my biggest worry moving into the future is that basically the government is going to try and work us young people to death effectively to try and make up that gap. And that's going to really suck. It's really going to suck. And my big worry about this is because there's going to be way more old people than there are going to be young people. And the old people can get together and vote as a voting block and vote for their own interests, whereas young people will effectively get crushed as we've been crushed pretty much all my entire life. When we talked about like how a lot of left-wing people have disparate views on young men and they're not willing to, to go out there and support and help young men, I talked about how I don't like that. And one of the reasons why I don't like that, and I wish I'd brought that up at the time, is like, where's our kind of generational solidarity, right? Us millennials have never even come close to sniffing the levers of power, let alone activating them and moving them and changing society. It's all been the baby boomers and it's going to continue to be the fucking baby boomers for at least another 10, maybe 20 years. Yeah, let's just show a little bit more generational solidarity for us young people because, again, we're not the ones who made the world the way it is. We're not the ones that have access to power. It's going to be another 20 years, probably, before millennials are actually in the driver's seat. And we'll finally have the opportunity to actually work on and undo a lot of this mess. Anyway, I got wrapped up in a side tangent there. Anyway, the point here is that as there are more and more baby boomers are entering retirement and there are less and less young workers there to replace them, effectively what that means is that someone at some point is going to have to be squeezed to make up that shortfall. And I'm extremely worried it's going to be us. So that's the issue if we don't keep having kids, is that that is the kind of calamitous futures and calamitous results which could await us. So let's look at some demographics here really quickly. Let's look at the demographics of South Korea. And let's actually just refresh this so we have the black background. Perfect. So we can see here, let's bring this up here, get a better look. Like this is... <laughs> This is very, very bad. And what we can see here is this large bulge. I need to get like a, a next time. 
I need to get like a mouse pointer or something like that, that I can so highlight on my screen. So anyway, as I was saying, this is an extremely unhealthy demographic pyramid because you can see right in the middle, we have this glut of middle-aged workers, which over the next 10 to 20 years, they're going to be moving from that 40 to that, that 60 and that 80 framework. And we could see in the lower brackets that there is almost nobody to replace them and year upon year it gets less and less and less and less and less. I don't know what South Korea is going to do. They are looking at even like Japan is trying to manage their demographic decline as best they can. Actually, let's bring up Japan's to slightly more than Korea. <laughs> yeah. So this is a slightly, slightly better demographic period. This is what October 20, this is like October 21st, 2021. When was our other one here? Okay. 2021. So this is two years old, a couple of years old. But for Japan, this is a little bit better because it's more uniform. We can see that we do have this glut in that kind of 50 to, or the 40 to 60 range, moving up to the 70, but moving down, it's a little bit more even in terms of the pyramid. The bottom part isn't quite as smushed in, although it's a little bit more smushed in than is healthy, but this is probably manageable. When I look at this, this is like, I, I see this falling out, the demographic bottom falling out here. That makes me really worried for uh, South Koreans and <laughs> especially like going up against the, I wonder, do we have, can we get the, do we have a population pyramid for North Korea? I wonder. Oh, we do too. Okay. So this is North Korea, 2020, I mean, a couple of years old, but this is a, not the best demographic pyramid. But certainly a lot healthier than what South Korea is looking at. They actually have a bottom here to support their older population. And like, this is what makes me worried for South Koreans is when you have a North Korea that has a much more stable demographic base, if, you know, the country is actually able to survive for another 20 years, their demographics are going to look so much better than South Korea's. They're going to have so much more young people. They're going to have so much more working age population that it could really potentially be an issue for a South Korean independence in the future. If, if North Korea is able to continue to beat them out so heartily in the demographic game, if you will. So anyway, moving on, here's another one that's, that's in rough shape for obvious reasons. And here is a demographic a chart of Ukraine from 2023. And this is similarly repeated in the Russian tree as well, where you have this kind of really like, like hollow gap here, like where this gap. So what was that? That's 25 years ago, basically like the fall of the Soviet Union, a beginning of independence for Ukraine, very, very rough period of time here. You can see like a real pinch, little pinch there in terms of their demographics, but they are trying to come back and rebound from that, but they still have a very low fertility rate in Ukraine. They have a very low birth rate in Ukraine. And this, like this kind of little, little bump here, that's something that's seriously going to be a uh, issue, not right now, but coming up into the future. So that's another example of like a really rough looking demographic pyramid. When you see stuff like this, when you see those like little pinches, what it tells you is that that country probably endured some sort of very difficult period of time where people weren't having kids because they had much bigger fish to fry so to speak. But let's look at a couple of healthy looking demographics. One is the demographics of Mexico. And this is one of the reasons why Mexico looks, and this is 2020, 
looks like such a good trading partner for the United States. We see we have a very healthy looking pyramid here with lots and lots of young people at the bottom starting to move up. And one thing about Mexico, and we've talked about this before, is that they are a country that is clamoring its way from a developing country to a developed country, that they are a country with lots of young people who are energetic out there, ready to go make their mark on the world. And young people, they spend more, they consume more. And Mexico is a country whose wealth is growing. So you have a young, dynamic population of people who want to buy things. And then you have in the United States, you have an older population, an older skilled population that is looking to sell things. So it's a very, very good partnership. So Mexico, one of the few countries that has managed to maintain healthy demographics, and that is definitely going to help them going into the future. Another country which has maintained a very healthy demographics, country of Israel. As we can see, we have a very solid looking pyramid here. Not quite as good, I would say, as Mexico's, but still really solid looking demographic pyramid. So Israel is another country which has managed to maintain pretty healthy demographics. So what, that's a brief overview of what good demographic charts look like, what bad demographic charts look like, and what might happen if we don't try and get our ducks in a row here. So let's talk a little bit about why people aren't having kids. What is the issue around why people aren't having kids? And I think there's a couple of different factors that are going into it. So let's look at South Korea first. And I found an article here that came out a couple weeks ago. And this is from the cut. This is from a feminist magazine. So I know that some people will not appreciate the source right off the bat. That being said, though, this is a very, very interesting article that does a good job of framing why, particularly from a woman's perspective, they're not super interested in having kids in South Korea. So this is an article going over a world without men. So there's a lot of very interesting tidbits in here. That being said, I too vociferously disagree with this movement and how it views men and the aims that it is trying to accomplish. That being said, I can understand where they're coming from. So let's move into a world without men. And we're going to see a lot of this kind of thinking. And I am more than happy to call this out when guys do this kind of shit. And when girls do this kind of shit, it's the same bullshit. Don't try and go around postulating about some world without the other gender. It's never going to happen. You just look ridiculous and psychotic, okay? Just chill. Men aren't going anywhere. Women aren't going anywhere. We got to find a way to live with one another, okay? Okay, moving on. A world without men. The women of South Korea's 4B movement aren't fighting the patriarchy. They're leaving it behind entirely. And when I read this, this reminded me of a very popular internet movement, which doesn't seem to be getting as much traction as it used to. It's morphed into other forms, which is the men going their own way movement. Big tap. I haven't heard a lot of, a lot of that handle being thrown around for quite some time. It's been a couple of years, but as soon as I read this, I'm like, this is basically like, like women big towels, essentially. This is what they are. So we're not going to go over this entire article. We're going to go over some of the, the important points. But it's, a, it's quite a long one, but let's get into the introduction here. Young Mi's childhood was a difficult one. The 25-year-old nurse was born to a poor family in Daegu, South Korea. Known for being one of the most conservative cities in the country, Young Mi's mom left the home when Young Mi was young to escape her husband's physical abuse, leaving her and her sister behind with him 
and the parental grandmother. But when she was five, her eight-year-old sister started losing hair from stress. As she grew older, young Mi found herself depressed, unsure of what the future held, and financially unstable. In Korea's patriarchal society, which women are generally expected to defer to their fathers and adhere to rigid beauty standards, she felt like the perpetual victim. Obsessed by the wrongs done to her by her father and pressured into maintaining her appearance in order to please men, despite her meager budget as a nursing student, she purchased new clothes each season, spending a lot of money on cheap, poor-quality clothes from H&M. She wore makeup religiously. I cannot go outside with any makeup. I felt ashamed of my face, she said. I had the pressure of wanting to look beautiful and wanting to be desirable, physically or sexually. Just a brief aside here. For those of you guys who don't know, in most countries in Asia, grooming standards are higher for both men and women than they are here. But for women, they're like on a whole nother level. Like it's insane the type of type of crap they're expected to go through to maintain East Asian style of beauty. But yeah, what most women are expected to do in countries like Korea and Japan to maintain that style of beauty is just out of control. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, the amount of makeup, the amount of time. The amount of money they're expected to spend in fashion and clothes and makeup is crazy. For guys, it's usually just like like not having a beard and stuff like that. Being nice and clean shaven, clean cut, well groomed, nice looking shirt, nice looking. No, I'm not. I'm not that passing the grooming standard over in South Korea. But I do want to say that yes, well, grooming standards are more stringent for both sexes. For women, it's like just it's like a whole nother level. So let's continue. While scrolling through Twitter, a young me came across footage of protests taking place in the streets of Seoul in South Korea, where cases of femicide, revenge porn, and dating violence are widespread. A surge of spy cam sex crimes overwhelmingly committed by men had mostly resulted in fines and suspended jail sentences, if they were prosecuted at all. This was not the case, however, for one 25-year-old woman who had taken a non- consensual photo of a nude male art student and posted it online. She was sentenced to 10 months in prison and court-ordered sexual violence counseling. The demonstrations were a reaction to the blatant hypocrisy. But yeah, that's, if that's fucked, like in my opinion, some chick is like taking pictures of you naked and posting them online. That's bad. Obviously that's horrible. But what this article is drawing attention to is the fact that men had been doing this to women for years and years and years and years. And they had posted overwhelming evidence to the fact that this is happening and the perpetrators receive almost no punishment where the one time it's a girl books thrown at her. So that's what the, the issue that they're protesting is. Like, I'm sure some people, when they, they read something like this, they'll think that they want the, the women who posted the nude picture of the guy to go free. No, that's not what they're protesting. They're protesting the obvious double standard. Young Mi was moved by the solidarity she saw, but there was one thing that she found perplexing. Many of the women at the protest shaved their heads on camera. She began to follow more and more feminist Twitter accounts. Young Mi understood that this was a public rejection of the same aesthetic expectation imposed on Korean women that have made the country a leader in grooming products and plastic surgery. She began to realize men do not do that. Men do not feel the pressure to buy clothes every season or wear makeup. 
And quite frankly, I don't think that women should feel pressured to have to wear makeup, feel pressured to have to buy all this clothes or feel pressured to live up to these beauty standards. But one fun fact that a lot of the times that, you know, how in Asia masking is much more culturally accepted, particularly when you yourself are feeling sick, usually it's culturally accepted to wear a mask and that will help reduce the spread of germs as you're going about your daily business. But a lot of times girls will just put on a mask because they don't want to put on makeup. They're too tired of having to do the whole song and dance and spend hours putting on makeup. So they just put the mask on and go outside. Anyway, let's continue. Soon young me shaved her head too, stopped wearing makeup and joined the so-called escape the corset movement happening among young women in South Korea. The movement, which first gained popularity in 2018, saw Korean women publicly turn away against the socially imposed beauty standards by cutting their hair short or going barefaced. Young Mi was not alone. In 2019, a survey found that 24% of women in their 20s reported cutting back on their spending and beauty products in the previous year, with many saying they no longer felt they no longer felt they needed to put in the effort. This eventually led Young Mi to the smaller 4B but growing movement among Korean women. 4B is shorthand for four Korean words that all start with by or no. The first no is by hod or a refusal of heterosexual marriage. The next is by shla. Sorry, guys. My Korean, not that great. I, I apologize. Is the refusal of childbirth. And by yuane is saying no to dating. And the last one, by sexu, is a rejection of heterosexual and sexual relationships. It is both an ideological stance and a lifestyle. And many women I spoke to extended their boycotts to nearly all men in their lives, including distancing themselves from their male friends. So this to me, it sounds exactly like the tenets of the men going their own way movement, but just reversed for women. And I'm going to say to these women, the very same thing I say to the MGTOW men, all the power to you guys. And the reason I say that is as a revolutionary and the 21st century, a 21st century revolution isn't going to look like a 20th century revolution where we all grab our, our fucking moisten the gats and march on the Kremlin or anything like that. A 21st century revolution, in my opinion, is going to happen in a much easier way, but probably a much more realistic way, given the current attitudes of people, which is. Just people deciding, you know what, I don't want to participate in the system anymore. I don't want to participate in this late stage capitalist experiment. It doesn't seem like it has any benefit to me working my ass off for a corporation. Doesn't seem to benefit me sacrificing myself for a family where the government isn't going to support me or help me. Doesn't seem like a benefit to me. Putting myself in a situation where the government might not believe me in an abusive relationship. That doesn't sound very appealing to me. So you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to check out. And I think that that is very powerful. And I 100% support men who want to do that too. Men who say, you know what? I don't want to grind myself for this corporation anymore. I don't want to feel like I have to be the sole breadwinner for my family and all the pressure is on my shoulder. I don't want to go through the whole song and dance to go through the dating market and find someone that I'm attracted to and is attracted to me and we have a similar chemistry. I don't want to do that. I just want to check out and live my life. I don't want to contribute to the system anymore. And that to me is probably 
the most powerful act of revolution that you can do outside of marching in some sort of revolutionary movement to overthrow the government. Well, I know we spent, I just spent like the whole first part of this episode talking about, you know, why people are having kids and it's a bad thing that people aren't having kids. But honestly, my big point here is if you don't want to partake in the society, you shouldn't have to. If you don't want to have kids, you shouldn't have to. If you don't want to have a relationship, you shouldn't have to. And from a man's perspective, if you're not interested in spending your time and money on a relationship, you shouldn't have to. You don't have to. People are far beyond the point where they want to bleed for our society anymore. People don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to do anything for a society which isn't giving anything back to them. So they're checking out, and rightfully so. And I think, and I hope honestly, that if we get enough people checking out, both men and women, we can actually get some real change happening. But the one thing I do want to say, my one real criticism of the 4B movement here and MGTOWs and a lot of these other type of movements is that guys and gals don't blame each other. It's not the guy's fault that dating and relationship sucks right now. And it's not the girl's fault that dating a relationship sucks right now. It's the system that we have and it's the buttons that it has to push. I feel like our system really activates the worst aspects of humanity It activates our greed our competition, our desires to screw one another over and get the jump on each other. I feel like our current society really activates our, our scaven instincts, if you will. They really activate those base bullet points. What we need to do is to change the way society is structured so relationships look a lot more attractive to most people. Because right now, it seems like, but this is like in almost every fucking circumstance, is that relationships are set up as competition just like jobs are set up as competition and quite frankly i've always believed that competition is overrated i've always believed you get better results through collaboration not through competition and a lot of the times when people say that competition yields the best results it's almost always in extremely artificial circumstances anyway let's move on a little bit more with our article because a couple more points that i want to bring up and i want to touch on so moving through, young me connected with other feminists in Dengu, where she lived with her mother while attending nursing school and meeting each other offline. It's so easy to recognize each other with a short hair, she said. She stopped seeing her friends from high school and middle school, whose conversations still revolved around makeup, clothes, and boys. We met last November in a cafe in Seoul, where she's been living for the last two years. She was barefaced and dressed comfortably in loose jeans and a white fleece jacket. Her hair was long enough to be pulled back in a ponytail as she'd grown tired of people asking her if her short hair was about her nursing job. But she tucked it into a white baseball cap. Feminism, she said, helped her recognize that the patriarchy was the problem and not her. That the bad things that happened in your life are not your fault. And I'm happy that she's recognized that the problem isn't with her and she should have the freedom and opportunity to dress and live However she feels, just like any man or anyone else should have the same opportunity. But here comes to me the most toxic and dangerous part of this ideology, and it's the same with the, the big Tows as well. For young me and many of those who subscribe to the basic premises of 4B or practicing Baihan, this is the only path by which a Korean woman can live autonomously. In their view, Korean men are essentially beyond redemption and Korean culture as a whole is sleep patriarchal and often downright misogynistic. 
That to me is dangerous. When you start writing everybody off as hopeless, beyond redemption, beyond salvation, not only is that dangerous and toxic, quite frankly, but it's the first step on the path to dehumanizing another person. And yeah, it's, it's gross. It's really gross. And it's gross when men do it, and it's gross when women do it. While four base adherents may hope to change society through demonstrations and online activism, only by modeling an alternative lifestyle to other women, they are not trying to change the men who they view as oppressors. It is too soon to tell whether this movement can survive and thrive over the long haul, but its ideas and actions have affected the country's online discourse, politics, and most of all, individual women's lives. Just got a couple more paragraphs that I want to say, and we'll wrap. In December of this year, or excuse me, of December of 2022, Korea's fertility rate hovered around 1.2 per women, as now it slid to 0.75, the lowest in the world. The Korean national government launched an online national birth map that showed the number of women of reproductive age in each municipality illustrating just what it expected of its female citizens. South Korean President Suk-yul won the election in March of 22 with a message that blamed feminism for Korea's low birth rate and a promise to abolish the country's Ministry of Gender Equality and Family. Women were outraged by this map, observing that the government considered them to be livestock. One Twitter user reportedly created a mock map illustrating the concentration of Korean men with sexual dysfunction, several of these digital feminists responded with a boycott of the reproductive labor expected by the state and decided that the surest way to avoid pregnancy was to avoid men altogether. It was through these online communities that 4B emerged as a slogan and ultimately a movement. I just want to stop here and say that anytime you are making maps and charts and using women's fertility to make your political point or try formulate a policy on the world you've lost the plot you've lost the point you need to roll it back because let's be fair here guys no woman has ever gotten wet with a man discussing her fertility to her okay no man has ever gotten to home plate by going oh baby it just looks so fertile to me and it's here we get to the next part of my message and something where I think a lot of conservatives really get this wrong, particularly guys like Matt Walsh, whereas they obviously boil women down to their ability to produce children. That in a lot of conservatives' minds, that if you don't have the ability to produce children or you don't have children, you are effectively worthless. That kind of mentality isn't going to engender a lot of female sympathy for you. We can see that with Matt when he was like talking about the fertility rates of 16 year old women it's like it's very clear how he views women and what their role is in society and the difference there's lots of differences between me and a guy like him one i'm a reasonable respectful human being he is not but a huge difference between me and a guy like him is that i don't see women's role as to birth children or to raise children in society and let's bring this to my ultimate point about how I think we really need to change the way we look at childbirth and family raising in a 21st century society, because we need to accept the fact that there are just people who don't want to have kids. And that is 100% okay. You don't have to have kids. You don't need to have kids. If you are a person who has decided that I do not want to have the experience of raising kids in my life, that's completely okay. 
You don't need to be shamed or belittled or put down or treated like you're somehow less valuable or lesser of a person just because you don't want to have kids. And I do think that the talk of the demographic crisis ramps up. I think that kind of, I think that kind of rhetoric, particularly from the right, is going to heat up. Although actually, no, I could be wrong about that because a lot of the right fotainers or what have you are childless. So not exactly the best at leaving the standards that you preach to everybody else. Again, it's always pretty funny to me that a greasy socialist is like doing a better job at living traditional family values than these conservative fucks. But the other part of that is that there are lots of people who want to have kids who can't, who can't have kids because it's expensive to have kids. Housing and amenities aren't exactly there in a lot of cities. And you're not going to get any support from the government. You're going to have to rely and hope that you have a close-knit group of people who can support you. And if you don't, having kids might not be a viable option for you. So on the one hand, we have people who just don't want to have kids, who are forced into having kids or rated into having kids by expectations of society. And then there are people who want to have kids, but because of the way society is set up, it makes it functionally impossible for them to have kids. So what's the obvious solution here? The obvious solution is to enable the people who want to have kids to have more kids and to leave the people who don't want to have kids alone and let them live their lives how they want to live it. So take a guy like me, for example, I got two kids and I'm going to get the old snipperoonie and we're, we're shutting down the spigot. But if we lived in a society which had more support for children and I felt like I had a better safety net and that I had more means and opportunity to have children, I would very happily have upwards of four kids, but I can't afford to have four kids. I don't have the time to have four kids and work a full-time job and do all the other things that I'm doing. Even though it would be nice to have, to have more kids, it'd be nice to be in a society where having more kids would be an option for me. I simply can't do it. So yeah, if you're a person that doesn't want to have a kid, I would be happy to have an extra kid to make up for that fact. But right now that's effectively an impossibility because I don't have the means and resources to do that. So let's finish off this article here. The blowback and fear that 4B practitioners experience underscores their conviction that Korea is still a frightening place for women. Young Mi said that men have tried to physically assault her on the street three or four times. She recalled an episode where she and some friends all had cropped haircuts and were dining at a Japanese restaurant in Dengu. Throughout the night, the restaurant owner and his friends were making gagging and puking gestures at them. While Min Jin and I met at a coffee shop near Central Train Station, she told me that she was worried that someone in the cafe might post a picture of her online because she, was, because she had short hair and was openly talking about feminism. Others I spoke to insisted on using pseudonyms for safety reasons. It's not just the political backlash and the economic circumstances that pose a threat to long-term the long-term sustainability of the 4B and its influence. Any social, like any social movement, 4B has its own internal rifts and divisions. Can 4B women still be friends with men? With women who still date men? Does lesbianism privatize relationships, destroy feminist solidarity? and resexualize women, or is it an essential foundation for a world without men? Some 4B practitioners were also turned off by the movement's focus on cisgender women to the exclusion 
of trans women and many of the communities that require photo ID attesting to the applicant's sex. It's fucked. Totally fucked. And Minjin said that one of the feminist communities she joined asked her to submit a video of her Adam's apple ostensibly to ensure that she wasn't assigned male at birth. What the fuck is that shit? For these practitioners I met in Korea, these were academic disagreements that had little impact on their own personal commitment to living apart from men. Okay, so there's a lot of like really fucked up shit in there. They're getting people to send pictures of their photo of their government ID to ensure that they are the sex that they say they are. That's, that's really messed up to me. And you can already see like this is a thing that happens with a lot of, it can happen with a lot of left-wing movements is kind of like internal debates on what does it mean to be a real 4B women? Can you have lesbian relationship? Can you not? Blah, 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 blah. This kind of stuff is a big problem in left-wing circles where they overanalyze themselves to death, trying to find the best, most perfect, pure way to, you know, distill their political ideology and movement when realistically, the, you know, those kind of concerns are pretty secondary to the larger concerns that they have. But if we lived in a society where these women just felt comfortable to dress and do whatever they please, then we probably wouldn't have to have these kind of questions, these debates raise up because all of these questions are political in nature. They're not personal in nature. They don't actually deal with the heart of two individuals' relationships with one another. Again, these are all political concerns. For a movement born of rage, what happens is when, what happens when that rage mellows or when other concerns take priority. Yuan said some of her friends are selective feminists who forego a makeup when they meet her, but are ultimately not ready to give up the advantages that come with being conventionally attractive. They cannot let go of this power as a woman of using femininity. There are feminists who say, oh, I'm a feminist and I hate men, but I also want to be consumable. She and her friends described videos of ex bihan women who told their viewers they'd seen the light and returned to heterosexuality, a narratives that recalled the profusion of trad wife content online. Okay, pretty interesting here. And I like that they are aware of the degree of power and privilege that a conventionally attractive woman has, because a conventionally attractive woman might be one of the most powerful entities in society. I don't know if you guys saw recently, Chris Rock, he did a kind of a comedy special on Netflix, but one of the ways he ended off his special was talking about the power of female beauty, how the power of female beauty is so powerful that if Beyonce worked at Burger King, she could still be married to Jay-Z, whereas if Jay-Z worked at Burger King, couldn't really be married to Beyonce type of thing. So there is power in conventional attractiveness. And I think that is something that one really actually makes a good point of calling out that a lot of women are not exactly willing to give up that power that they have and willing to give up the power that comes with being conventionally attractive. Okay. So very fascinating article here. And the reason that I bring this to you guys is to show that one of the reasons people aren't having children is because that they don't believe that the society and system that we have is really conducive to having children. There's no reason for them to have children because there's really no reason they see to have a conventional relationships anymore. And again, this is not a gendered issue thing. It's not a problem with one gender or the other. It's a problem in regards to society as a whole. But even as good as this article is, they have a lot of hypocrisy on this website. Before I leave to talk about the other reasons why people aren't having kids, I just wanted to post this comment. I just wanted to highlight this comment by Andy Jackson. 
I believe it's a she, but I could be wrong. She says, interesting to juxtapose this article with as for fashion featuring made up skeletal models vamping for contour fashion houses. Oh, vamping for fashion houses, flashing images of what this article and women are featured standing against. I don't know whether to laugh or vomit at the utter stupidity of this, ma of this magazine ad placement. Just another reminder that patriarchy is alive and well here and around the world. Well, I don't agree with her that it's a patriarchal uh, reason why you are seeing fashion advertisements. I have ad block on, so we didn't see any advertisements when we were reading, but it's much more of a capitalistic thing. But the irony is hilarious to me. The hypocrisy is hilarious. Oh, then there's another one right below it. I find it ironic that a well-written article like this is peppered with Dior and fashion ads. And uh, yeah, that's to me hilarious. At the same time, they're telling women not to adhere to these beauty standards while forcing them in their faces so they can make a buck. Like this, I, I have, this magazine's got to make a buck. They got to survive. And the way they do it is by violating their principles. <laughs> Violating the principles from the get-go. Good job, guys. As much as this is a pretty interesting article, to me, that definitely, it, it makes me laugh when I think about that kind of irony. So that's one reason people aren't having kids. They are deciding that the way the system is structured is not beneficial to them, and they don't want to participate in it anymore. They want to do their own thing, and they certainly don't want to bring kids into this world. So what's the next reason? Well, kids are fucking expensive. And this is something I mentioned in a kind of tirade where I would like to have more kids, but I simply cannot afford. And I would say that this is the number one reason why people don't have kids. When I talk to people who don't have kids, who want kids, the reason that they are holding off is money. They don't feel that they are financially stable and they cannot support a child in their current position. And to me, this is where I find conservatives are extremely hypocritical on this issue because they'll blah, 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 bandy about family all the time. They'll talk about family constantly and how important family is, but they will never do any actual economic policies to support families, to make it easier to have children, to give people child benefits and child programs and services and that kind of stuff, because that would be socialism. That would be evil socialism, giving money to the kids and the families that need it. Like you want more people to have kids, conservatives? Make it easier for people to have kids. How about we talk about some social programs for working families? Who talks about that kind of stuff a lot? Bernie fucking Sanders. Who talks a lot about economic programs to support working families? Bernie Sanders and a lot of people on the actual left, not the corporate left, when they talk about these kind of issues. There is nothing more I want than society to support everyone, and that includes people who want to have families. And it's amazing to me because not only have conservatives not actually proposed any solutions to help people have families, usually a lot of the programs and policies they bring in actually make our lives more expensive, make our lives worse, and make it harder to have kids in the first place. That's not even talking about things like the ridiculous cost of housing in a lot of cities across North America these days. I mean, the only way I personally was able to afford to have a family and have a house is because I moved here to a city that a lot of people don't really consider to be desirable, but is the northernmost metropolitan area on the continent. 
here in Edmonton, a lot of people don't consider it to be desirable to live, but housing is pretty cheap. Food's pretty cheap. Gas is pretty cheap in comparison to a lot of other places in Canada. The one thing that does really suck is the weather. So if you can deal with the weather, it's a decent place to live, but that's Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, maybe a handful of major cities across Canada are actually affordable for the average person to move into, to buy, to raise a family. But for most people in places like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and then in the States like LA and Miami and New York, all these places have ridiculous cost of housing. It makes it prohibitive for the average person to actually be able to start a life there. So people are moving to other cities, they're moving to smaller towns. But one thing we can definitely do to encourage people to have more kids is to decrease the cost of living. The next reason I think people aren't having kids is more of a cultural one. And we're, we're, we're coming, my generation and your guys' generation, are coming at the tail end of probably the most anti-family cultural period in definitely in a very, very long time. Because before our time, the dominant media and culture was this kind of leave it to beaver, like daddy knows best, super vanilla family sitcom type of thing. These days, we know that's all bullshit, right? That's not what a real family dynamic is like. It's all this sanitized nonsense for TV. And most people knew that. And then something like The Simpsons comes along in the 1990s, which is a very countercultural for its time. Like saying that now, it seems ridiculous that The Simpsons have been around for 30 years and a most big pulp culture name out there. But when they first came out, they were very anti-cultural to what the sitcom was at the time and showed a lot more of the difficulties of raising a family and the challenges of raising a family. And that really took on with people. And what has happened since that time is that our media has very consistently shown the negatives, the challenges, and the strifes of raising a family to the point where those positive aspects aren't really shown as much, if at all. And I think that this gives people a perception in their head that childcare and raising a child is actually more difficult than it really is. While yes, raising a family is very aging and it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, it's also incredibly rewarding and fulfilling and uplifting on a personal level. And I think a lot of those aspects of child rearing aren't really talked about, especially in our media. You don't really hear a lot of the positive aspects of, of what it's like to raise a family and, and the positive aspects that it can bring to you in your life. And I think that's because we've had this kind of cultural shift where, you know, back in the fifties up into the eighties, it was like this, the, like I said, this really sanitized hokey pokey fake version of the family, leave it to be your father knows best. And then we have borne the antithesis of that notion in our media now. And I'm hoping that over time, our media can have really more nuanced looks at what it's like to raise a family. I actually, one show that I really like that I think does a much better job in talking about both the positives and negatives and the nuances of what it's like to raise a family is Bob's Burgers. Probably a lot more, obviously it's not realistic, but in terms of raising a family, it's one of the more realistic shows that I've seen. One of the things I really like about it is like comparison to something like The Simpsons, where a lot of the characters are just of each other, right? Like Bart's the mischievous rule breaker, bad student type of thing, where Lisa's the perfect straight A smart however you want to say it, right? A lot of characters are just effectively just it's of one another in a family and, and that's not hugely realistic or something like the family from Bob's Burgers. It's a lot more dynamic. Like all the characters are their own unique people and none of them are necessarily 
diametrically opposed to one another. None of them are just opposites of the other ones. They're all their own people with their unique likes and dislikes and interactions. And yes, of course, sometimes they fight like any family does. Those fights are born out of just the fact that they're just pure opposites of one another. It's out of the family dynamic that these kind of fights come out of. So I hope that in our media, we can get a little bit more of the positive sides of family rearing once again. And like I said, get a much more balanced picture of what it's like to actually raise a family. And now I'd like to talk about the last reason why people aren't having kids. And this does go back into the first reason, right? Which is a lot of people don't really see the benefits in coupling together and having a family in society. But there's that aspect of it that people, they just feel like they can't find compatible partners. But there's another aspect that I think is preventing people from having children is that is a pervasive pessimism that has permeated into our society that most people, including myself, I'll be real that most people, including myself, believe that things are going to get worse before they get better. And some people believe that they're going to get significantly worse and maybe never get better. You have, of course, things like changing cultural dynamics. You have climate change. You've got wars. You've got super bugs on the horizon type of thing. You have all these different problems that people can look into the future and see and makes them think, you know what, maybe I don't want to bring a kid into that future if the future is going to be extremely difficult. And I don't blame those people. Like, why would you want to bring a kid into a world that you think is going to get worse? Disagree with the amount that it's going to get worse. I think that these next 20 years are probably going to be rough. But by the time my kids start to enter their own adulthood, I think that things will once again start to get better. I think it'll start to rebound. So people, by and large, are pessimistic about the future. And that pessimism impacts their want to bring a new life into this world. So what is the solution to this problem? Well, unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of these can be solved in the short term. The most we can do probably in the short term is try and gear our society to make it so people who don't want to have kids can feel free not to have kids. And people who do want to have kids can have the support and means to have as many kids as they want to. But when it comes to things like the, the gender division, when it comes to things like pervasive pessimism about the future of the world, I don't think that there's really a lot we can do about that in the near term. We are living in an increasingly populated world. However, I don't think that's going to be the case much longer. And the fact of the matter is, is we are going to need people to come after us. We will need people to replace us. We're not going to live forever, at least not yet. So there's going to have to be someone who picks up the reins once I'm gone. And if we don't have anyone to pick up the reins, then what was the point of life feels a little bit empty. It feels a little bit hollow. I am beginning to feel increasingly less and less that there are any solutions that our current society will offer. I don't think that our politics is really in, in a place where it will offer social programs for people who want to raise families. I don't think our politics is in a place where it can't stop blaming feminism for the fact that women don't want to have kids, our politics isn't in a place where it could actually look at the root causes and root issues of why people aren't getting together and make a serious effort in fixing them. We're not in that place at all right now. And that is extremely worrying. People are far more interested in pointing the finger at one another than at the real culprits behind these issues. And maybe the only way we will get some sort of change is by people checking out of the current society, whether that's the 4B movement, whether that's Big Tao, whether that's whatever, 
The fact of the matter is, is that the state is still going to need people to work, to produce goods, to farm taxes, to all that kind of stuff. But if already we're reaching a point where because there's going to be less productive workers, there are going to be less taxes to go around. And then you put on the fact that you have people just deciding they do not want to contribute to the system, whether they're male or female, and are just checking out that is going to continue to put strain on the system because you have people not interacting with it and therefore you have people not perpetuating it. I'll tell you one thing, the reason why people aren't having more kids, and, and one of the things you'll always hear from like conservatives and stuff is like the reason people aren't having more kids is because there's too much wokeness. There's too much wokeness in the world. And that is, that, that's been amazing, right? They, they, we're really, I think we're finally reaching the absurd extremes of wokeness and what will be considered wokeness bad type thing. The one thing you'll consistently see from conservatives about why people aren't having kids, it's, it's the wokeness. There's too much wokeness. People are too woke to want to have kids. And I mean, I think the way wokeness now has been, is being bandied about is hilarious to me. I think we're really getting to like our absurd extremes on how far we can really take this concept because what's happening is that conservatives are starting to use wokeness in the way that left people left-leaning people would use words like racism or the various phobias five six years ago where everything is woke and it must be countered in this great political and cultural battle we must rush the wokeness crush it you know, there are people who this is their entire political lens. This is literally all they care about. Their entire lens of how they view politics and how they view the world is, is this woke or is it not woke? Because we're getting to the point where even saying things like slavery is bad is considered to be wokeness. And while we're talking about wokeness, I just, I can't not play this clip. When this clip came out when I was on my little hiatus there. And it is amazing because it really defines what I've been saying about conservatives and this whole concept of wokeness for some time. Themselves very liberal. And Sorry, this is Bethany Mandel. She wrote a book called The Stolen Youth. Of them consider themselves to be woke. And when, when well, we what talk about traditional to you? Right? Would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple of times and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. I mean, woke is sort of the idea that I... This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. Okay, so yeah, I'm sure you guys have seen that. It's been going viral. It's amazing. And then she went out to Newsweek, and she wrote this like big, long article about, oh, dad, I was... I was freaking out because Joy Gray said something negative about families or some crap. And if Brianna Joy Gray said that, it's a pretty shitty thing to say. I think she said something like, at least this is what Brianna said, is that Joy Gray on a hot mic said that the parents just have kids to perpetuate their own narcissism or something like that. But not a very nice thing to say, but to go around and be like, oh, this chick was mean to families. So now I'm all like flustered and whatever. It seems pretty lame. But my favorite part is that she instantly knows... She's been fucked, right? Like, oh God, this is going to go viral. And it's not like that was an unfair question at all. If anything, that was like a weak ass softball question. Define this thing that you are extremely obsessed with. Can't do it. Can't do it.
And what's amazing is that after this, like, of course, all the, the right wing guys or whatever come to her defense and they're like, oh, we know it. It's what it, it's X, Y, Z. And they, <laughs> every time I see one of these guys or gals give one of their definitions of wokeness, it's always different. Like every single guy who gives a definition is completely different from the other guys. So there's zero consistency to this definition. It just becomes a catch-all term for things that I don't agree with. Though the best, and out, out of all of this snafu that came out of this, the best definition I heard from wokeness actually came from a left-wing commentator, Kyle Kalinske, which I'm now just taking as my own personal definition of wokeness, which is the use of authoritarianism in the advancement of social justice. And for me personally, we've talked about this before, my heart is always in the same place as the wokeists. I am not willing to pursue means that I would consider authoritarianism in order to achieve my political goals. I've had plenty of conversations about people telling me, right, I'm not willing to go far enough and that kind of stuff. But I personally believe that if we enforce our political ideology through authoritarian means, effectively any gains we get will be temporary because you can't prop up authoritarianism forever. It has a limited shelf life. And once the thing, the person, the concept or whatever, holding together the authoritarianism goes, then things start to unravel. So you, if you want to create a stable, lasting, left-wing version of socialism, you need to eschew that authoritarian thinking. Anyway, I just thought I'd give my own definition. You know, what I see as a very, I think that's a very nice, consistent and succinct way to think about it. Back to the point is the reason people aren't having kids is not because women are too woke or whatever. That's just something conservatives say because they don't want to deal with the fact that these issues are systemic, that these issues require widespread societal reform and conservatives in their ideological framework, societal reform is, it's, it's heresy. They can't have it because society is perfect as it is. And the only thing that's wrong is we have the wrong people in charge. And if we just put those right people in charge, everything would be great. And now speaking of wokeness to blame an issue that has zero to do with wokeness whatsoever, let's move on to the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. And we'll end our episode today with that. I don't know if I'd call it my feel good story. Might be a little cheeky if I call it that. But the fact of the matter is, is that when I see shystery banks implode, I get a smile on my face. I'm happy about that. So when it comes to this story, I really wanted to talk about it when it happened because I saw a lot of people like, well, first off you had, of course, like the right wing come out and say that the reason Silicon Valley bank collapsed is because it was too woke, hilarious. And it again, shows what I mean about conservatives using this term in the way that leftists would use like fascist or racist or whatever, five or six years ago, in a sense, they just use it to describe things and politics that they don't like this collapse had absolutely nothing to do with wokeness. And I've always found banks interesting in the sense that they're like my sworn enemy. They're the thing that I'm most diamet diametrically opposed to in my life is financial institutions, Wall Street, that sort of thing. If anything has to die. It has to be the finance system. That's the one. <laughs> if we want to talk about revolution, we will never see revolution until we destroy the financial system and the financial sector. But one of the reasons I've always found banks interesting is because I think that they're capitalism's Achilles heel. And if we could ever get like enough people to organize around taking down a bank, we absolutely could do it. So what happened to Silicon Valley Bank is that they had a run on the bank. 
And if you guys don't know what that means, and to me, I learned about this back in university and it's always stuck with me because I, I always thought it was so dumb. Like it was such a dumb thing for a bank to do. But anyway, if you guys don't know, banks don't actually have your money in the bank. Like when you deposit your money in the bank, it's not actually there. What they do is they take it and then they invest it and they spread it around and they do that kind of shady back deal banking business. So at any given time, a bank probably only has what, 5% of its actual liquid assets available in its vault. So what happens is if there is a point in time in which enough people are coming to the bank and wanting to withdraw their money from the bank, if enough people come and do that at the same time, the bank will collapse because they don't have enough money to honor all of these deposits. And like, again, the money that they have, the percentage of the overall money they have in their vault is actually a very, very small percentage of what they actually owe to their clients. So that's exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank here. What happened is that due to current economic factors, there's been a crunch in the tech sector. A lot of tech companies are struggling. Tech companies are going out of business. One of the statistics I read during this Silicon Valley Bank collapse was that approximately 90% of companies valued over $1 billion are not profitable. What happened is all these unprofitable businesses, all these businesses that had these loans that they needed to pay that were coming due, went to Silicon Valley Bank and they're starting to say, okay, we got to withdraw some of our money that we have in the bank. And enough of these people came to the bank at the same time, because again, this squeeze is affecting the tech sector at large. And Silicon Valley Bank obviously does a lot of tech investing. So because of this economic squeeze, a lot of people needing to pay their debts, get money to pay other things, they all come to the bank at the same time and they end up withdrawing more money than the bank has in its vault. And that what happens is that the bank goes on what's called a run. It's a bank run and the bank collapses. Usually stuff like this only happens when things are going bad or there's something bad happening. Like you can see a, a fall, like an economic fall coming. And everybody runs to the bank to try and pull their money out as fast as they can because they want to get their money in their hands and are worried that if they leave it in the system, it will eat its gone. That old South Park, this old South Park line. So again, I've always thought that this was like, you know, it, if you talk about it in like an economic sense, like, yeah, okay. Or, or they, they say that they're making money. banks are like making money that doesn't exist. They're doubling the money supply by doing shit like this, but they leave the economy in a very precarious state. And what I'm saying is here is like, if all of us, if enough of us people wanted to really fuck these banks over, we start an event on Facebook or something like that. It's like bank withdrawal day and everybody, as many people as you possibly can on this day, will go to their bank and withdraw all the money that they can. If we did something like that, we got enough people, we could destroy the financial sector overnight. That is, of course, assuming they don't figure out what we'd be trying to do or what we're trying to do and engineer some sort of workarounds around that. Like if they found out that everybody was going to come in on this one day, they could boost up their, their cash supply, that kind of stuff. All I'm saying though, it would be very easy to destroy the banking system if we got enough people just to withdraw their money on one day. So anyway, I know that this is an older story, but I really did want to talk about it. And I guess I'm just going to classify it as my feel good story because I have gone on for quite some time and I'm at the end of my rope for this episode. But with that, we're going to come to the end of another episode of Cheddar in the Skull. I sincerely hope you guys enjoy this episode. And I just want to take a little bit of time here and say that, yeah, as you guys know, have a newborn. 
And the thing with newborns is that they are notoriously unpredictable. So I want to give you guys a heads up that, especially for the first three to six months, which are, which are without a doubt, the hardest parts, at least so far that I've experienced of, of child rearing when they're a newborn infant and they can't really interact with you. They can't talk to you. It's you're having to guess everything, all their needs and that kind of stuff. And of course you have to feed them every three and a half hours, but it ends up being a lot to take in a lot to manage. And what I'm saying here is that there may be circumstances moving into the near future where I have to skip a week or two because there are things on my family life that need to need to take precedence over the show. Just wanted to put that out there for you guys. I'm always going to try my best to keep the schedule going, keep the show coming out on time. However, with a newborn, it can be tricky. So be prepared. If I need to miss a week, I will let you guys know in advance as much as I can. And we'll go from there. So with that, that brings me to the end of the episode. This has been Comrade. Signing off for now. And you guys take care.